Welcome to the Bank of Me podcast channel, looking at how individual and team performance build strong cultures. Hosted by James Farrow and Chris Preston. You are listening to a deep dive episode. Welcome to our Deep Dive Bank of Me podcast. We are thrilled today to have Steve Thorne, Executive Director of Digital, with us, and he'll tell us more in a moment about his career journey and where he is right now. He's featured in both books. Uh, By name, there are many stories of his experience in the Culture Builders. And also more anonymously in the Bank of Me, there are a a few tips and tricks that come from his own experience and expertise. So thrilled to have him with us. He often contributes to our senior leadership programs. And and so we were really keen to get Steve along to share some of his experiences, some of his tips, some of what his lessons have been throughout his varied leadership journey. So Steve, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Uh, Maybe you could start a a little bit by explaining what your career journey has been, because as I said, it has been so varied and I love some of the stories you tell around all the different elements. So perhaps kick us off with a a little overview of of where you started and where you are now. So I guess um, aged about 15 or so, I I decided that um, university wasn't for me, or at least as I later found out, wasn't for me at that point in time. Um, and I decided that I wanted to get away from West Yorkshire, where I'd been brought up, and um, and go and see something different. So I guess I took it to an extreme. And on, uh, after I finished my A-levels, I um, I joined the Navy as a junior officer. And um, absolutely thrilled, first in my family and all the rest of it, to do such a thing. And um, really, really excited and looking forward to it. Very sadly, within um, the first 18 months of my naval career, um, I got injured, uh, badly injured, and became a war pensioner by the age of 20, which is quite a strange thing to do, and especially since I didn't actually go to a war uh, along the way. But I guess, and being very open and clear about it, you know, I suffered a period of depression after that, probably not surprisingly, from a full-on 24-7 existence to being, you know, difficulty to walk and all the rest of it. And um, one day woke up with this very passionate belief that whatever I was going to do next, I was going to do it really well, or do it to the best of my ability. And um, I chose a career in IT, not least because at the time I wasn't sure how good my legs were going to be. And so being able to sit down while you worked was uh, quite an important criteria. And I guess I I took it with massive passion. I I went to work for IBM for a short while, decided they were too big a company for me at the time. Uh, Found in the same building, working for IBM as a subcontractor, a small firm called, or then, then small firm called Logica, which I chose to join in 1992. Stayed with them right through. In 2012, they were bought by the CGI uh, company from Canada, stayed with them until uh, summer of 2018, becoming the UK CEO of their operations, etc. Then decided to have a bit of a rape, of break, and unfortunately was suffering from bits of skin cancer and had that removed, and also took some time to um, renovate a house in Liverpool overlooking the sea, and then returned to work in November 18, working for Civica. And... Um, Truly thrilled and having a great time here too. I'm sure Jane wouldn't mind me saying that you know one of the things I'm, I probably I, I would recognise I'm at an extreme end of a spectrum on is that I spend quite a bit of time doing my career planning and doing it vigorously and also 
encouraging all those who work with me to take control of their destiny by uh, writing their own plans. Because if you don't write it down, the human brain twists what you remember you thought you wanted at some point in the future. And it's dead easy to be swayed by others to do something that isn't actually in line with your plan. And if you do it consciously, that's fine. If you do it unconsciously, that's probably not a great decision to make. Thank you, Steve. And, and I love the, the journey, the diversity, and, and thanks for being honest and open around the different elements of it. Now, you just before we move on, I want to just pick up on that piece around planning of career journey, because absolutely share your passion that that is so critical. How do you help your team do that? Because you've got a huge number of people across the world. So what role do you play in, in helping them be really intentional and make sure that, that it goes beyond intention and becomes that plan that they then follow and go back to? Yes, I start by role modeling what I would like, what the role I would like to play with them. And so, you know, I share with them about my own history of career planning, which is there is a sheet of paper and a desk at home, which is updated frequently as often as every three months and sometimes as rarely as every six months through time. And the newest one is on the top. And I talk about how it's in three parts, the left-hand side, what I feel about the role I'm doing now, the middle part about the role that I think I want in the future, and on the right-hand side, the things that I'm going to do to accelerate my chance and probability of getting to the middle ground. And at no point in anywhere in this chart does it talk about titles. It talks about the attributes of the job. And so I ask them if they've got such a plan, and often they don't when I first meet them. And I talk about the importance of writing a plan. And for those of us who are old enough like me, I talk about how if you have a plan, you can hold it like a sheet of acetate over the description of a role that someone's offering you. And you can assess the good, bad and indifference of the fit and make conscious decisions based on what you have written rather than being persuaded by others. And over time, I introduce the fact that your work plan, of course, is only part of a broader life plan. And I describe that the only two people who've ever seen all of my work plan and all the, the only two people who know of the life plan are myself and my wife in my case. And, and that's an important part because you need the love and support of others to A, be able to be successful at work, but also to, to see that in the context of your life plan. And, and so I work with people to make those, those plans come alive. I show my interest on a regular basis and I help them with pursuing the opportunities, the networking and other things that can bring those opportunities to life, both within the firm that I'm currently working for, and that's a great privilege, but also sometimes beyond if they identify a career that's beyond that goal. And I love the way that you phrase the, the acetate going over um, the role perhaps that someone's looking at, because so many conversations that I've been having with people recently where they've been thinking, well, what is their next career move? What's their next job move? Um, talk, talk about having this sort of core list of things that are important to them, those attributes. Uh, and I love the, the idea of putting an acetate over. So uh, so really resonates. Yeah, for me, it's about the things, you know, you want more of the things you love and like. You, you recognize there are some things that you perhaps aren't naturally drawn to, but on a necessity of a role. And there might be some things that you don't like that you want to see less of in a role. And then you use those lists as long as, as well as the characteristics of where you want to move those things to, to help form those views. I, I'm old enough to remember acetate sheets. I'm, I'm not so sure what the modern equivalent is. 
<laughs> well, I'm old enough to remember them too. So I think we'll, we'll leave that there and let anyone listening that doesn't know what they are get in touch and uh, and give us an alternative <laughs> that might bring us up to date. Um, now, what you're talking about there, of course, to you and why, why we think you're so exceptional is to you is just a natural part of leading. But um, it's one of the many things that we feel is such a great reason, a great example of, of why we deem you as exceptional. And that whole area around how you lead, I really want to explore a bit more and pull out some of the things that you feel really work for you that might be useful for others to to try or yeah. consider. So, so tell me, you know, all of that experience packaged up right from the Navy through to where you are at Civica now, what do you feel that the real strong traits are of leaders and, and the traits that you've perhaps played with and adopted that have really worked for you? So I think the one that's beyond the world of work, which I brought into the world of work for me and has worked powerfully right from the beginning, is about treat staff as if they're volunteers. And I was very privileged. I spent a lot of my childhood weekends in the Lake District in England on doing having services delivered for me by a charity, a group of volunteers who gave up their weekends and holidays to provide kids like me with a great experience of the outdoors. And I, in turn, went on to do the same for them and indeed ultimately became chief instructor of a charity doing just that. And if you think about the volunteering model, you know, if you, if you as a leader don't engage those people properly, if you're not seen, if you don't listen to them, if you don't act upon their suggestions, if you don't explain the rationale for things, and particularly during a period of change, then ultimately you may be surprised next weekend that they just physically don't turn up. It's their choice. They don't have a contract. They don't have wages as such. They don't have, they're joined to you by a belief and an alignment to a destination and a goal and objectives. And if that becomes strained or impossible for them to see anymore, then they may simply not come next week. And I, and I apply that in the world of work. So, the whole piece about telling people why something is important, why you've chosen to do something the way you've done, and in many cases not choosing to tell them the answer that you may that you may have had to make, or indeed not making an answer until you have engaged with them properly. And engaging means two ears and one mouth, and that's a really important part of it. So for me, I think the one biggest thing I've learned over the years is think of people as volunteers. Yeah, which I love because I think that's a really good kind of acid test, isn't it? If, if you're leading, would these people still be here doing what they're doing with the passion that they have if, if they were volunteers? And if the answer to that is yes, then we're probably doing something something right. So I love that way of looking at it. Um, uh, what about virtual teams, um, Steve, and the leadership of virtual teams? Because this comes up with, with a lot of people we work with and we do a lot of work on remote working and how you keep people engaged when they're not in the same physical place as you. You've got yeah. such a, a large and diverse group of people. Tell us again, both now and in the past, what, what have you done here that really works for you that you, you might help others to explore? So, I mean, I've, um, I've, I've been privileged to lead teams as, as many as a, a thousand people on a single project and obviously many thousands of people in other countries and more recently many hundreds of people and they're spread out amongst different geographies. Uh, in Civica here we have, um, you know, over 10% of our colleagues are based in India. In CGI that number was far higher, it was more like 20%. And then of course in the UK alone, all of our people, my colleagues here in Civica are spread out over 30, 40 locations, and one in four of us in Civica 
including me, is is actually based at home. Um, and so it takes it, you have to stand back and think about how you adopt and change your model. So you know, how do you recreate the sound bites that you hear at the coffee point? How do you re how do you make sure you maintain a connection that is not just work based but also friendship based and perhaps know something about what goes on beyond work? And of course, the answer is you have to make the time and you have to ask. And so, I, in fact, I led a virtual call this morning of uh, half a dozen people, uh, 10 o'clock, and the first five minutes we had a bit of chit chat, just like we did, in fact, when you and I spoke first thing on this call about what did we do at the weekend. And we allowed each other to imagine the other person doing those things at the weekend and we rebuilt those connections. Uh, we didn't get to see the sunburn, if anyone had been out in the sun too much, but we did at least understand a bit about the life beyond work. The other thing we've spent a lot of time on and recognize is, you, you know, there's so many devices that have video cameras, but how many people remember to turn them on? If you remember to turn them on, you allow all the people to see the body language and the interaction. And it's especially important in our experience, if you have a core of a team who are in one location and everyone else is scattered in different locations, it's too easy for the core people to forget the others. A long time ago, a boss of mine showed me a technique, which was to sit in the big room with many people, but not all the people on the call, and to physically put a, a copy of that person, the other people's photographs on each of the chairs, so that you remembered as you were going around the meeting, you're thinking to yourself, Fred hasn't spoken for five minutes. When was it last we asked Sarah for a comment? And you, you would draw them in. And now if you do that for a few months or a few weeks, I actually think you build the, the consistency and you build the habits to keep it going. So for me, virtual teams have been a part of life for 20 odd years, if not longer. And I do believe they are the way forward and we should recognize the strength. We don't have any cultural issues about is somebody who's not in the same office as us working. We don't have any of those worries. But actually we have a duty as leaders to ensure that everybody still has the connection to the world of work and not just the task. So that connection, I, I couldn't agree with more because that piece around human connection, that question around what did you do at the weekend that you mm. mentioned earlier is so critical in reminding us that we're all humans. And so many, so many times people are dashing from one meeting to the next. And so they go straight into the topic without that little bit of human connection. And it doesn't need to take long, does it? You know, yeah. it can just be a, a small moment where you remind each other that you, you exist as a human being before you exist as a, as a deliverer yeah. or task. Uh, uh, I know one of the, one of the things that um, people tell me here in Civica is, a, is has been a bit different since I joined is that I try every day to to find time to either walk around the office where I am that day and just bump into people and have a bit of a chit chat or do it on calls and you know I quite regularly uh, phone somebody up who's been been mentioned in a in an email or something and just phone them up and say look hi I saw your name on the note I wanted to say thank you for the particular thing but moreover how are you and that kind of interaction is, I believe, demonstrates leadership, but also inspires others to be leaders because leadership can be a very lonely thing. You know, one of the things I learned in the, when I was in the Navy is that, you know, the captain often eats his meals on his own or their meals on their own now. There's female captains now as well as male ones. So I was when I, when I, I suppose when I was there and they often eat their meals on their own and that's quite lonely and they have to be invited almost to eat their meals with others, which it sounds very strange. But those captains have an, a, 
huge opportunity to build the network with their team. I remember to this day the story that's in, I think, your first book about walking onto a new ship and the captain taking me around and introducing me to every single one of his crew, 272 of them, and being able to tell you their name. Well, that was easy because that was on their uniform, on a badge. Could tell you what they did and what their role was as part of the mission of the ship, right down to the guy who ironed shirts, though I'm still not sure I understood that bit. And then lastly, could tell you something about each and every one of them that was beyond their role on the ship, their family, their interests, their football team, whatever. And to see the pride in all those faces and to see the pride that the captain spent the time taking people around and doing it and making sure that those people in turn knew the value of those individuals, I think set it apart. And I try really hard to, to do the same. And um, quite often on, a, on an evening before going to a meeting the next day, if there's somebody I don't know, I'll look up their photograph in advance so I can walk up to them and say hello with their first name straight away. I won't need to be introduced because I can do it for myself because I've seen the data. And people are often surprised by that, but it makes a big difference. Yeah, and I mean, that, that story around your experience with the, the Navy, I have told so many times. There are thousands of people out there that have heard that story and been totally inspired by it. And I know there were a couple of people I worked with that said, gosh, I could never remember that many names and, and those many facts. But what I could do is start with 10 yeah. maybe a week, learn 10 new names a week and, and 10 more things about each person. And that would be a great starter. And I think that habit of, of, of making sure that you're constantly connecting well, and remembering yeah. at a deeper level that, that you have naturally is something others could adopt with a bit of work. I regularly now play a game of 25 names and 25 photos. So on one sheet of A4, 25 faces. On another sheet of A4, 25 names. With a leadership team or similar against the clock, how many can you match? And this is really important in virtual teams. How many of those can you match? So you run the clock, you get the scores. There's always somebody, usually HR come out top, funny enough. Um, they come out at like 20 out of 25 or something. And then you ask three questions. What's in common with the 25 people, which is usually that they're a key group of talent in our organization. Why have we spent five minutes doing this? which is usually to say that our personal networks that we know are not the barometer or the exclusivity of the best talent in our organization for a particular thing. And thirdly, what are you going to do as a result of doing the exercise from now on? Which is things like, I'm going to start calling these people up. I'm going to start using these people for tasks. When I walk past them in the office or see them on a virtual meeting, I'm going to know their name and be able to introduce them to others and me to them. If you, if you think of introducing that kind of technique, which I'll be clear I stole from somebody else years ago, it makes a massive difference over 12 months. If you did 5% of the population every time and you got every one of those people to do 5% of their populations, how quickly can you spread the knowledge of names and faces and what they're great at through the organization? quite limitless really in terms of its ability to almost become self-seeding and self-perpetuating. Um, self 
Yeah, and, I, and it's again, it's that point around the it's it's limitless in terms of its impact. But but what you do is you make it start somewhere at a simple level that everybody can get their arms around, rather than it just feeling too big and therefore it goes in the in the yeah, too yeah. difficult box. And I think that's the beauty of a lot of what you're sharing and a lot of what you're about is it's not just about knowing what to do as a leader or as a human being. It's about doing it and that's so much of the uh, the secret here is not just knowing but doing and all of your examples hopefully are, c- are continuing to inspire others as they're listening now there were two, two other things you just talked about that mm, I want to pull sure. out if I may one was habits which we'll come back to in a minute but the other was consistency because I know that's a huge part of again what makes you exceptional what makes you have the impact is the fact that you don't do these things just once that you build trust by really showing up consistency uh, consistently rather um, but of course in a world where things are changing constantly um, helping people manage that and, and and helping them with a level of consistency is always quite tricky so can you share a little bit about your experience here yeah. and, and how you feel you are able to create a, a safe environment as, as you know psychologically safe environment for those that yeah, you I work think, with? I think there's two things that I think are really really key really one is that the world is continuing to change and the world of work and the work of businesses and organizations continues to change at what seems like an ever-increasing pace. But actually, if you can cut through some of the hype and the, the noise, actually underneath it, it's a very consistent world. And you think about Brexit as an example for a minute. You know, you could spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, reading papers, listening to views, trying to form an impression about what will Brexit mean to your organization and your clients and your teams, etc. But actually, it's three years since there was a public vote. In many ways, we still don't have that clarity. We're still living in uncertain times, and you could speculate about how much longer that may happen. If businesses had allowed themselves to be become fixated upon that, then actually many businesses would have failed in the interim because the consistent thing has been really core, being consistent with your clients, keep, keeping to be close with your clients, reassuring your staff that we don't yet have the answers, but when we do get the clarity, we will adjust if necessary our model and our offerings etc enables people to continue to deliver the results needed day in day out and so i think brexit actually is will may well become a a great model a, a test case for the future around the importance of consistency in very uncertain times i think the other thing you know that's 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 key here is about avoiding being a magpie so i work in the tech sector Almost every week or every month, there's another new thing. And it will be dead easy to be like the magpie and chase after the next shiny thing. But actually, of course, many of those shiny things either don't happen in the end or they take a lot longer to develop or there's a fundamental delay, et cetera, et cetera. And so being consistent and remaining to your core, but being conscious about when you add something in becomes really important. So it's okay to be uncertain, I think. I think you have to be open and explain to people that the uncertainty, what's causing the uncertainty, what might cause it to become certain and when you think that time frame may be. It's when you're starting a new initiative or choosing a new thing to focus on, is there capacity in your team to start it? Is there capacity in your team to sustain it? And more importantly, perhaps, is there something that you're going to stop in order to put some focus on the new thing? 
Because, as we all know in life, if we keep adding more and more things to our list but never take anything off, all we actually end up doing is working more and more hours to deliver the thing or spending less and less time on each. And ultimately, we, um, we fail more of those things. And I think too many times organizations are great at starting something, but they're pretty rubbish at closing off things when they're no longer a priority or they're no longer important. And they don't even make the conscious effort of moving them into a sustained mode as opposed to an initiative mode. And so for me, I've worked for leaders in the past who've been great at starting things. But actually, one of the people I learned the most from was somebody who used to regularly set a timeline for when something would turn into business as usual or would indeed be stopped. And I think that's, that's actually something that's probably as important as starting initiatives is making sure you know when you stop them, how you stop them, how you communicate you've stopped them, and free up people from worrying about whether they've completed it. So for me, consistency, I think, is really important. Who wants to have a boss who every day changes the focus and is flip-flopping from many different initiatives? You want a boss who is a leader, a group of leaders who are consistent in what they're focused upon. I love that notion of being consistent around what you stop as well as what you start or continue because we've got a few businesses we're working with at the moment where they're actually uh, just been acquired or they are acquiring and growing and scaling up. And that, of course, creates a real need to be even more strict on what are we going to stop because the, the, the whole notion of scaling up and growing so rapidly means there's more to do, there's more to adopt, um, there's more to integrate. And I think that whole piece around growing pains very much links to, to that consistency point, to that, you know, be clear about what you're going to stop as well as what you're going to take on. And, and I wouldn't mind just getting, getting your perspective because it's such a hot issue for so many people, I'm sure, listening. You know, that growing pains knowledge and, and experience you've had because you've worked with businesses that have had rapidly grown. Um, what, what would your advice be there on the things to watch for? So I think there's been, I've had three experiences, I think. I've, I've grown some teams very rapidly over the time. I've been part of a business that has bought other businesses, and I've been part of a business that was acquired. And I think they're all different experiences, but they are all got some real moments. So could you imagine this experience, sitting in a large theatre about four to five weeks after being acquired as a business, and there's a series of presenters talking about the way the business will be um, will be run moving forward. So one one person stands up and says, "We've de we've we've decided that the way forward is X," and then tells you all about what X is and how X will come alive. The other person, who's equally made a decision, spends half their time talking about how they'd evaluated what both companies were doing before the transaction in a particular area, and what they've chosen to do as a result of investigating both. Which of those two people got the best buy-in? Which of those two people took people with them? Which of those two people made it easiest for, every, for those who are in the audience to then go and share with their teams beyond the rooms? And I think that was a really powerful lesson. I was actually on the side at that point of the, uh, in, the, in the team who'd acquired a business. I was sat in the audience, but not one of the people being, um, who, who'd been acquired. And I thought that was a really powerful lesson. It was about nearly 20 years ago. And it stuck with me that as you go through an acquisition or a, an adoption of a new business, et cetera, how do you work with that team to, make, to allow them the chance to feel, A, they've been listened to, 
B, they understand the context that you're working with, the corporate objectives that you've been set around the change and the implementation, and how do you make it self-sustaining so that they in turn can share the leadership of the change? And I think those are some pretty important points around the, the, that piece. You can apply those whether you're an acquirer or being acquired. And you know, as a leader of a business that's being acquired, and I've been in that place too, you know, you often know nothing more than the, the staff at large about the process that you're in. You may even only find out on the same day the staff do. And so you, again, be very conscious about the language and your style and your veneer in the office that day. No matter how unsettling it might be for you, you still have all those valued co colleagues. You still have valued clients that you're working for. And you need to provide leadership to all of them as that certainty develops, as you gain confidence and understanding of what the new owner's plan is going to be. Yeah, and ultimately, with, with all of that, as you as you say, it's about helping people feel that they're they're worthy, that they're valued, yeah. isn't it? You know, listening to someone throughout, showing you've listened to them, truly listening to them. It says, I value you, regardless of where we're going next. I value you enough that, that I put the time in to think of you as, a, as an individual. And, I, you know, that's the basic of it, of it all, isn't it? You know, we all need to feel valued. And then, you know, on the growing pains bit, you know, when you're a fast-growing business, often you start off with, very immature systems and processes around various activities. Uh, I'll give you a great example, GDPR. Remember, it's only, it's only a little over a year ago that we were all being bombarded in our private lives by emails and letters saying, we have this data that we've collected previously on you. Are we okay to use it for the following purposes? Please confirm yes or no. Now, what was going on in most companies at the time, larger ones, was they were introducing online learning tools and courses so that they could demonstrate to their stakeholders that uh, their staff were aware of the new regulations. Uh, they, had a, they had a model of how they would monitor compliance and drive compliance forward, et cetera, et cetera. So when those training courses came out, what did leaders do? Well, in my case, I wrote a note, as soon as the announcement came out, I wrote a note to all of my people uh, saying, all the people I worked with saying the, three, the three, following three things who it was who was interested in, in the fact that we had been through the course. So I talked about clients and them asking for evidence that we'd all undergone our training. I talked about new business prospects and the fact that they asked us questions in tenders. I talked about regulators and I talked about shareholders as all groups of people who wanted to know. But I also talked about the less obvious one, which is other members of staff. And in particular in the virtual world, wanting to know that their colleagues in India or the US or wherever had the same understanding as GDPR as those of us in the UK. And so you put it into that context, you write a note, you, in, you say to people, look, I've also done the training course myself and to prove it, I found a spelling mistake in question 13 in the second sentence. And because I raced to work that morning and did it before anyone else. What have I done? I've modeled the way, I've modeled it by doing it myself. I've shown the importance of it to a variety of stakeholders, and I've asked for your prompt attention to get it done. I haven't asked you, I haven't written it in such a way and told you, I've engaged with you, and hopefully you won't put it on the begrudging pile, you'll put it on the active pile of something to, to do. And I think if you apply those kind of thinkings, and an awful lot of this is about put yourself in the eyes and ears of the rest of the team, and allow yourself, allow the opportunity to think what they would feel if they received 
that message, that makes such a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that whole piece around why is just, again, it's people know they need to do that during change in particular. It's 80% why, 20% what, because yeah. if people don't understand the why. They're not interested in the what. But it's again, it's knowing it and doing it are two two completely different things. So now, now there is so much more we could talk about. I feel we probably need you for a part two mm. conversation. But I thought maybe what we'd do is just, you talked about habits earlier. Mm. So in, in the spirit of Bank of Me, let me ask you to give us um, three habits that you have that help you stay in the black as a human being um, and perhaps help others stay in the black. Uh, I know you have one particularly around what you do uh, with your phone when you go on holiday, but uh, pick three that you that you could share okay. that help you be well, the best so you could be. One would be that phone. So I, I am old enough to remember when Blackberries and similar first came to the world of work. Um, I have a massive religious belief that the phone needs to stay in the drawer when I go on holiday. Two reasons. One, I, desperately, I, I definitely need my rest and everyone needs their downtime. But more importantly, my team need to know that I have trusted them to run the business while I'm away, confident that they will make the best decisions with the best information in front of them at the time. And afterwards, I'll catch up when I get back to return to work. And I do believe that, and I learned that in the Navy, because in the Navy, you live on the same ship that you sleep on the ship. And when you're not on duty, you have to have absolute faith in everyone else and be able to rest. Otherwise, Within a few days, you will be so tired, you could make a very serious mistake and sadly injure or kill uh, many people. That's the first one I'd offer. The second one I'd offer is think about how you can model the way. And so I do this one a, a, on a regular a regular basis. When I there are days when I don't when I leave the office early, I leave the office at 4:30 or something like that. I've done what I need to do that day, and I decide to leave. But I don't just kind of put my coat on and slink out the door. I actually walk around the office and say goodbye to people and say that I'm going home. And I do so to make sure that they understand that if the same happens to them, it's okay to go home early. Now, it probably cost me another five minutes. But you know what? I, I do demonstrate that it's okay to go home early. And so you model the things that you want, the third thing. And then the third thing and the final thing, and I come back to it time and time again, two ears and one mouth. How can you demonstrate to others? And so I learned a trick a, a few years ago. And in fact, I, I think of a politician who I think has, has got the same trick. It wasn't from the same source, but I, I think of it as a, a, very, a, strong, a very strong change you've seen. Nicola Sturgeon. If you saw her on the stage five, maybe 10 years ago, you would see her very instantaneously responding to questions from the audience, a kind of you know, fire from the hip type analogy. What you now see is a lady who carries a pen, is seen to engage with the audience to hear the question, write something down, is seen to almost annotate or underline bits of the question before she, she replies with her answer. I think that that, that, was, that was probably a benefit of some coaching, self-awareness, a determination to change. And what has she done? She has clearly demonstrated she wants to listen before she speaks. Uh, you know, whether I like or dislike her policies is immaterial. What I, what I think is really important is there is somebody who models that behavior of being seen to listen before they speak. And so I try very hard every day to remember the two ears and one mouth and think about my contribution. It's not just in voice. I've also more recently taken it on myself to not be the first to respond to emails. So to create the opportunity for, my, for the team to respond before I do. 
you know, we all get copied on many more emails that we're the two-line to. We also have very broad distribution lists on emails. If we can only learn to make sure that we don't be the first to respond, etc., we create the space for others to co-lead with us rather than leadership being the active one and lonely for that one person. We can create a more cohesive model. So there's my three. Well, and brilliant. I mean, you've given us so much, Steve, that people can be not only inspired by, but very practically go and act upon. And uh, whether it's the day that people are listening to this, making sure that uh, they think about saying goodbye to people if they're going early with their with their coat, or, or whether it's many of the other areas you've touched upon around how you truly lead with people as human beings at the heart. So as I say, so much more we could talk about, but I think we're going to draw a close there. And uh, thank you so much for joining us and hopefully you'll come again and share some more of your experience and tips and stories that I'm sure will last uh, with many for, for many well, years to come. Uh, so thank you so much, yeah, Steve. And, and thank you. I, I, I'm, I'm a, I, I keep taking things away from your books and your webinars and, and such and we'll continue to apply them. Thank you very much, Steve. And, and likewise, and the conversation will continue. Continue the journey at www.theculturebuilders.com.